Esther chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. And when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return to his own head and that his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves to their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, providence, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disgust among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Good morning. Good. Sounds like you're awake. Well, keep your Bible open there to Esther. Last week, we were in Ezra, so we've kind of flipped backwards in the Old Testament, but we're not flipping backwards in a timeline. Chronologically, we're coming toward the very end of the, the writings of the Old Testament. We're in the 5th century B.C., and then by the time you get to the 4th century B.C., the Old Testament is done, and there's what's called the silent years before Christ comes on the scene. So we were in Ezra, and if you remember, the book written by him first talks about the Jews. The first half or so of the book discusses the Jews' return to the land and building the temple and the great opposition they faced, that was one of the emphases there, as Ezra writes, is opposition. By the end of chapter 6, they finally did rebuild the temple. And really, we need to remember that's the center of who they were before Yahweh, their God, was their temple and their altar. Finally, by the time you get to chapter 7, we're introduced to Ezra. And this, the 7 through 10, is the second section of the book. And it's during the reign of Artaxerxes of Persia. Remember, the world power in the, in the world, in the land, was, was Persia. Everybody bowed to them. And Artaxerxes on the throne. And he, he gives Ezra permission and even blessing. And, they re, and he, with another group of people, return to Israel. This is about 60 years after that first group. And so Ezra comes back, and he had to challenge the people, if you remember. Back there in Judah, they had intermarried. They had entered into syncretism, bringing paganism into their midst, into what should have been a true singular devotion to God. And Ezra had to teach them a few things from the Word of God, and that's what he did. We talked a little bit about syncretism historically and currently. 
In the flesh, I think for any of us as humans, it's easy to enter into syncretism. It might have to do with superstitious practices that you adhere to or philosophies of some sort that teach multiple ways to God and to life or maybe it's more subtle ones like immorality and materialism. But whatever it is, it's things that we try to combine most of the time without even thinking about it with a singular devotion to God. As Christians, I believe we have a desire for a singular devotion to God, don't we? But how do you maintain that? In fact, how do you know when you are engaging in syncretism? Well, it's by knowing God's Word. That's the basis of it all. By immersing yourself in His Bible. That's the truth. Jumping into the pool of God's truth and His Word wholeheartedly, getting really wet and not drying off. I hope you are able to move forward in that, what that means for you personally. Well, then let's come to Esther. Pray with me if you would. God, thank you for the chance to look at Esther. Thank you for putting this special book in your word for us. And I pray, God, that you would just teach us as we explore Esther, as we remind ourselves of a story that may be familiar to us and see, hopefully, a little bit more of you and your character and your interaction with us even today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Esther, it's a remarkable story, story fairly well-known one. It's unique in the Scripture. If you, if you think about it as a glimpse into life in Persia for the Jews, everything takes place in Persia here in this book, it's right between um, those two sections in Ezra. I mentioned that last week, but I'll say it again, that the story that we're seeing in Esther is coming down during Ezra's, before Ezra returns to the land and after Zerubbabel returns to the land. The Jews have multiplied in Persia. Remember, they went to Babylon, which then became Persia, and they... They multiplied there. Most did not return to Israel when they had the freedom to do so. And, you know, maybe they were comfortable, probably quite successful in Persia. Esther is unique in one sense in that God's name is never mentioned in the book. Other religious or spiritual words are not used in the story. In addition, Esther is never quoted in the New Testament, as most Old Testament books are. Some Christians in history have shied away from the book of Esther because of these things. And yet, I'm going to propose, I think, that the silence speaks quite loudly. The silence is teaching us that God is behind all the scenes and in all the scenes of the story. I think the silence actually is intentional. It screams to us, if silence can do that, of God's characteristic of providence. God's fingers are everywhere in the story. You know, I think for us, it's easy to emphasize God's work when we see miracles. We like those, right? That, a miracle is the extraordinary. It's God overturning the laws of nature to carry out his design, such as the parting of the Red Sea. In Providence, however, you don't see those things, but God is no less involved. He is no less powerful. It's when he moves in the common affairs 
of everyday life, of normal living. It's when he moves in the natural order to work his way, to carry out his design and his will. That's providence. Ephesians 4.11 calls him, that is God, it calls him the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Providence. Now, maybe that's the beauty of it as we look at Esther. God is not in the book, but God is in the book. Personally, I believe it's something similar right now, here today in our lives today. Miracles may not be common, but God is no less involved. I believe that God's directing all creation and your life, your very life, according to his plan for his glory and even for our good. Romans 8, 28, it's a verse that you know most likely. It says, we know that all things, did you catch that? All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We're talking about providence. The reason I bring it up now is I want you to keep your eye on that. I know a lot of you have thought about this before, but think about it again today as we look at Esther now. The date is around 475. This date you can put on your timeline. It's the second to last date I had for that timeline I handed you a long time ago now. 475 B.C. That's, a, that's an approximate for the story of Esther that's coming down here in Persia. Ahasuerus is on the throne of the world power there. And maybe you know him better by the Greek name Xerxes. It's a great name when you have all these letter games and you need an X. There's two of them in there. Speaking of the Greeks, if you, if you keep the history in, in timeline in, in mind here, in the years to come, not really too far off, the Greeks um, will overthrow Persia. In fact, they're probably facing Greece right now, the, the small but powerful army of Greece. Persia is being threatened by them even now. So the king in chapter 1, he puts on a great banquet. This was a great banquet, six months long. I don't know about you guys, but that's a long time to party and the men and the women were separated during this and during the partying and at least, you know, every day that they partied. And at some point, the king calls for his queen to show off her beauty. And for one reason or another, doesn't exactly say, but she outright refuses his command. After taking counsel with his advisors, the king divorces her. We'll see this a couple times in the story, but Ahasuerus... I kind of think it's a theme with these kings. He had an anger problem. And once he calms down, he, he misses his wife, it seems. And so a search is launched to find him a new queen. Well, this is all setting the stage, if you will, for the story here. And in, in verse 5 of chapter 2, you can kind of follow along in your Bible as we kind of speed our way through. In verse 5 of chapter 2, we're introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai, or more likely, almost surely, his father or his grandfather was deported from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So that would have been over 100 years ago or something in that neighborhood. Persia is his home. That's what he knows. In fact, his name is probably Persian, not Hebrew, although you find a lot of Hebrews now with that name. And he is the guardian of his young cousin, Esther. Both her parents had died. She was an orphan, and he had adopted and raised her. The text here says that Esther was physically beautiful. 
That's mentioned, by the way, in the context of King Ahasuerus looking for a new beautiful queen. But we, we, it's okay to notice that the Bible acknowledges physical beauty. It doesn't paint it negatively or necessarily positively, but it, it does acknowledge it. And we, just as a side note, the Bible talks particularly to women in First Peter Peter says this in chapter 3, he says, Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry and fine clothes, but rather what's inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. I don't think Peter's saying don't do those things, but he's saying that is not what defines beauty. We'll look at that again at a later point, but the Bible speaks to those sorts of things. King Xerxes however, was a little more concerned with the outward appearance. And it's, it's really not clear here whether Esther or, and or Mordecai um, intentionally entered this national beauty contest. You know, in, in that case, if Esther was, was hoping to gain the queenship, it, it would betray that they didn't know the law of Moses very well. Um, in, that, in, in God's law there for the Jews, they weren't to marry a pagan foreigner, Right? But perhaps Esther didn't have much choice in the matter. In any case, after two six-month periods of beauty treatments, that's 12 months, one year of beauty treatments, you thought your wife spent a long time in front of the mirror this morning. The king says, it says in, in 17 of chapter 2, the king loved her more than any of the other women and she became the queen. So she didn't need to hide her beauty, but in this case, she did hide her nationality. Without most people knowing it, here we have a young Jewish queen in Persia. Remember providence. God's at work all the time. By the end of chapter 2, Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king, sitting at the gate there, and he saves the king's life. But nothing more comes of that. Not yet. Keep that in mind. Chapter 3, we're introduced to the second in command in the kingdom, a man by the name of Haman. Notice in verse 1 of um, chapter 3 who Haman was. Haman was an Agagite, that is a descendant of a race that King Saul, remember King Saul, first king of Israel quite a while back now, according to God's command, King Saul was to dispose of that whole race, completely annihilate them. Saul disobeyed that command. And here we have a reminder of the far reaches of sin's consequences. Haman is on the scene. Well, he's not only on the scene, he's in power, and maybe he even remembers that incident, and he wants revenge. I'm not sure if that's the case, but as an elevated official, Haman gets irritated at Mordecai, who will not bow before him. So he determines to wipe him out. And while he's at it, he's going to wipe out Mordecai's people as well, all the Jews in Persia. Well, <clears throat> he's a high official, but he also needs the king's permission to do such a thing like this, and he convinces the king that a certain people, he doesn't call them by name, are a curse to the kingdom, and a date is set, a decree is given, all the Jews can and actually should be killed on the twelfth day of the month of Adar. You can look it up for yourself, but there may have been around a million Jews in Persia. That's a lot of people. Mass genocide is what he's after. Does it remind you of another point in history that much more recent to our days, 1930s, 1940s in Germany? Mass genocide of the same people. 
Well, it's impossible, I think, to see this rise, this incident with Haman leading it, without identifying it as pure evil. Haman says he will increase the royal treasury by 10,000 talents of silver. Where's he going to get that? That's a lot of money. He was going to get it off the dead Jews, most likely. And undoubtedly, he was going to pad his own pocket with it while he was at it. I wonder, is there a spiritual angle here to this? I'm sure there is. If Satan can destroy the people of God, perhaps he can thwart God's centuries-old promise to send a Messiah, a Savior of the world. So, I don't know if you can imagine this. I'm not sure I can quite, but try. Racism, prejudice, anti-Semitism, it's all legalized now in Persia. That's where we're at. That's what we're seeing. Try to imagine the flavor of the society after this law goes into effect. Now, even if you weren't on the chopping block, even if you weren't Jewish by nationality, it says in verse 15 of chapter 3 that the city was in confusion. It was not a small happening. They were not an insignificant part of society. But keep your eye on the twists and the turns of the story. God's at work, and interestingly enough, he's at work even with evil going on. When Mordecai learns of this plot against the Jews, he, he grieves, he implores Esther the queen to intercede for them. Chapter 4, Esther is hesitant to do this at first, and you see it in verse 11. Look at that. Here's what she says. One law applies to every man or woman. This is verse 11 of chapter 4. One law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned the death penalty. Unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. If she tried to intercede, then her life was on the line. Mordecai responds to her in verse 13, basically saying your life is already on the line. He says, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Do you see faith in the providence of God there in that declaration from Mordecai? I think, I, I think there is faith there. So Esther then finally agrees to go before the king. She says in verse 16 of chapter 4, After that I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Either way, her life is on the line. And I think there's courage and faith in her declaration and her decision there too, isn't there? Faith in God. Even though he's not mentioned by name, he's here. So chapter 5 then, Esther does go before the king. The king does show her favor and she invites the king and Haman to dinner at her place. Why was that? At that point she would make her appeal. That was her plan. So in, in, in verse 9... Chapter 5, verse 9, Haman says he was in good spirits, starts off that way. He headed home to recount with his wife and his friends how rich he was, how great he was, all his successes, and yet, then his spirits were dampened. In fact, he was furious. Why? Because Mordecai would not, look at verse 9, Mordecai would not rise or tremble in fear at his presence. This is the kind of man we're looking at here. 
Concluding that he couldn't wait for the date set of their mass destruction, then his wife and his friends advise hanging Mordecai the next day. So Haman immediately builds a giant gallows, most likely 80 to 90 feet tall. That, that's giant. And this was to display Mordecai on in death. By the way, this was not likely the type of gallows you might think of if you think of a typical hanging. It was more of an impalement or crucifixion idea. Most of you know this story, I would guess, right? But in addition to the details, the play-by-play that we, we see as we read it, we're keeping our eye on the providence of God. Do you see any direct miracles? I don't think so, but God is everywhere. He's working in, he's directing the normal affairs of life toward his purposes. Chapter 6 now. It is, it, it's the same day that we were just in, in chapter 6. And that evening, the king, Xerxes, he's suffering from insomnia. His cure for not being able to fall asleep is to have someone read to him the affairs of state, the records of the daily dealings for how many years back. Seems like that ought to have worked pretty well. But... <laughs> It didn't actually work for him, but it did bring awareness to um, the fact that Mordecai, however long ago it was, had not been rewarded for his act of saving the king's life. And he must not have got to sleep because all of a sudden we find ourselves in the morning and uh, Haman had come in to get the king's permission now to kill Mordecai, hanging him on that gallows that very day. However, with a strange turn of events, courtesy of God's hand, I would think it turns out that Haman advises the king as to what should be done for the one whom the king delights to honor or reward. Well, Haman can't think beyond himself very well, and with presumption that he is the one to be honored, he recommends high and public honor. Well, if you know the story, Haman had to confer this very honor that he described upon his very enemy Mordecai. It does make you wonder if the king saw some of Haman's arrogance and wanted to put a check on him. I'm not sure. But we do know that the providence of God is at work here. You see it. Well, chapter 7, we, um, we find the king and we find Haman at Esther's house finally <clears throat> for dinner. And Esther then responds to the king with her request in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. It says, if you have, or excuse me, if I have found favor with you, this is Esther speaking to the king now. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, to death and annihilation, If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't have been worth burdening the king. So now she reveals her identity as a Jew. Haman is identified as the perpetrator of this horrible plan. He was terrified, and the king was enraged. It ends up that Haman himself is hanged on that gallows, the crucifixion stake that awaited Mordecai. Now, was the king's anger and his change of demeanor due to the threat upon the queen's life? Possibly, 
I, I would think that it was more than that. I'm not sure. Don't get me wrong. You, you can think about it for your own um, and determine for yourself. But Xerxes may not have been aware of the extent of Haman's evil plot. You know, I think it reminds us we need to be aware. Sometimes something looks rather benign or even decent on the exterior. But inside, thanks to the deceiver and his ways, it's pure evil. Be aware. Well, chapter 8, it tells us that on that very, that same day, that exact same day, Queen Esther inherited all of Haman's estate. The king gave it to her. Mordecai was given the signet ring and entered the king's service in Haman's place. That's a significant turn of events, isn't it? What a great ending to a story. Except it's not the ending quite yet. They still have a pretty serious problem on their hands. You see, once the law of the Medes and the Persians was sealed with the king's signet ring, signet ring it, that means it was given, it could not be revoked. That was their rule. You remember the law that committed Daniel to the lion's den? Same problem. Esther goes before the king again, it says, and begs him to help with the solution. And he tells Mordecai to construct another law, seal that with the king's signet ring, and send it to every province. Verse 11 of chapter 8, the king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. A certain day was set aside for this defense war, and <clears throat> contrary to the earlier state of the city being in confusion, 8, 15, and 16 says, The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. And the last part of 17 says, Many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because of the fear of the Jews that had overcome them. Conversion took place. And I wonder, I would think, many saw and recognized the providence of Yahweh over his people in that very incident. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, in that day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In fact, there it says that um, not a single person could withstand them, and the fear of them fell on every nationality. Do you remember that? When they entered into the land so many years ago under Joshua, the fear of the Jews fell on those around them. Here it is again. That also is by the hand of God. So more details are given as you read through the rest of that chapter. It said that they killed Haman's sons and the law um, was extended into the next day in order to finish the work in the city. And they killed off many enemies, but it says they didn't touch the plunder. I think that spoke to their reasoning for what they did. It turns out that Mordecai wrote a declaration at the, toward the end of the book, he wrote a declaration ordering an annual celebration going forward in order that they would not forget, that the memory would not fade of their deliverance from Haman. Uh, in, a, in a way, this really might be thought of as the climax of the story. Recognizing God as their Savior. He brought this about. This celebration is called Purim, as, as you saw, as Scott read there, and 
You can see the explanation of it there in the text. It's based on the word poor, which um, means the lot, especially that lot that Haman rolled in order to determine the day of their demise. This celebration is still celebrated. In fact, it's coming up in March. And you can look it up, but like many, many religious holidays, it's, it's had a lot of secularization enter into it. But traditionally on Purim, gifts are given, the food is eaten, and particular, particular foods are made and eaten. The book of Esther is read. And during the reading of the book, at every mention of Haman's name, it's customary to boo and to hiss and to stamp your feet and make all kinds of noise and rattle your noisemaker. You know, if you're a kid, this is pretty fun times. It's like you, you enter into the story in an obnoxious way. That's what you really want to be doing. And the idea is to blot out Haman, the enemy's name, as you interact with that story in the history of Israel. In fact, I think we did this once when I was a kid. Had all kinds of fun with it. Well, the book ends on a note of success and prosperity for Xerxes, it says, and also for Mordecai. You can see that there in chapter 10, as well as for the Jews themselves. So we've walked rather quickly through this story, remarkable story. Hopefully, as we've seen this, we, we find the emphasis on God's providence. By providence, we don't mean fate. We don't mean coincidence. We don't mean karma. We mean God directing all of creation and your life according to his plan for his glory and for our good. Providence, by the way, is an expression of that thing called sovereignty, God's sovereignty. As I was thinking about this, I think on the one hand, God's providential activity is on a grand scale. We should, we should process that a little bit. Something we cannot really grasp in its entirety Certainly I, I can't, maybe you can. If you can, I'd like to hear about it. Tony Evans says, God is always doing something bigger than you can see at any given moment. This is the unceasing activity of the Creator upholding all creation in ordered existence. He's guiding, He's governing all events toward its appointed goal. That's something we, we should process and, and, and have and believe. Well, on the other hand, providence is on a personal scale. It's on a grand scale, but it's also on a personal scale. His providence is at work in every detail of your life. Listen to what Job says in chapter 10 as he, as he relates in his own book there. He says, You clothed me with skin and flesh and wove me together with bones and tendons. He's talking about creation, God creating him. And then he says, you gave me life and faithful love and your care has guarded my life. Personal. Priscilla Shire says about providence that God goes before you, he paves the way, he makes provision for problems you don't even know that you have yet. You know, there's a story that relates how many years ago a young English woman envied her tall blonde friends for their beauty while she was less than five feet tall with black hair. Surely God had made a mistake. Yet years later, she changed her mind when she arrived in the country where she would serve him as a missionary. For when she looked around there in the Chinese streets, 
she realized God's purposes. She would be working with dark, short-statured people exactly like she was. Maybe you know the name Gladys Allward. She served as a missionary to China for many years. The point is God's providence is very personal. There's a reason that you are made the way you are. There's a purpose in you existing in the time and the place and the family and the situation that you are in. God didn't make a mistake with your body, your mental capacities, your strengths and weaknesses. You could go on and on. So let's recognize that providence not only speaks to his greatness on a grand scale, but his closeness on a personal scale. Providence speaks to his greatness on a grand scale and his closeness on a personal scale. You know, there's lots of mystery involved in, in this, isn't there? It's, it's a little bit like finding one piece of a 100,000-piece puzzle. Do they even make them that big? We don't know exactly where our piece fits. In fact, we don't even see the full picture. You know that image on the front of the box? We, can't, we don't have access to that. We don't know what the finalized thing looks like, at least not now. And I think it's important for us to note as we look at what it means, what God's providence means, is that we're not a passive part in God's providence. And, and that's pretty obvious in the story of Esther here. She, in particular, is active, isn't she? She's not passive. You and I are act, an active part of God's providence as well. That one puzzle piece takes action, if you will. Like Esther, we should have courage, take initiative, seek and use wisdom in your cho choices in your life, plan big, plan carefully, just don't plan as if you control the future. And I, I think the story of Esther stands as a reminder, an encouragement to us. I think that's one of the reasons it's in the scripture, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But as we read it, as we study it, we're given focus. In other words, we're given a perspective on the details of God's providence in this one story. And you could say, well, that's pretty obvious in that story. And maybe it is more obvious sometimes than other times. In fact, oftentimes we look back on our lives, we hear other stories, and we see the details of God's work, His provincial, providential, excuse me, providential guiding hand. But He's always doing that. Sometimes it's not obvious. And faith is involved. Faith has to be involved. Because we don't see every piece of that 100,000 piece puzzle, at least this side of heaven. There are difficulties to grapple with, aren't there? What about the problem of evil in the world? What about my free will? Well, let's keep grappling with those, and I don't know exactly how they all fit in, but trust is involved. So, you know, it's kind of regular life for us, right? Job, family, daily routine, whatever it is. Maybe that doesn't seem all that significant. Your single puzzle piece may not seem important. But it's vital to the whole. Even big puzzles, if you're missing one piece, is it complete? It's not complete yet, is it? God providentially works with purpose with each one of us. On the grand scale... 
but also on the personal scale. I read that verse, uh, Romans 8, 28. Let me read that again and, and add a little bit of 29 to it. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And then the first part of 29, For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He predestined us as a believer in Christ to be conformed to the image of His Son. There's a great part of the purpose of God's providence. So if you're in Him, there is purpose in all of it, even if you don't see it. And a great part of that purpose is that we would be sanctified, conformed to the likeness of Jesus Himself. I just want to remind you as we finish off today that um, <clears throat> a couple of the elders will come up during the last song and you're invited to come and just pray together with them. If there's a need on your heart, if God's stirring you somehow, if you want to bring a praise to him, um, we're, we're happy to do that again, just privately up in the front after the service. And if you'd pray with me as the music team comes up. God, I'm thankful that, um, again, that you just, you gave us this book and that the silence speaks to us as we look at it. The silence reminds us that nothing is outside of your hand. Nothing gets away from your notice. But that's not even the whole picture. You are the one behind everything, working everything toward your great ends. I know that I can't even begin to comprehend how that, how that works, how that looks, but I'm so thankful that you are personal and that your, your providence is close. You care about each of us. You know each detail. You have purpose for each detail and you love us enough to conform us to the image of your son. Sometimes that's not so comfortable but we do want it, God. We pray that you would continue your work in our lives. Let us encourage one another even as we go from this place and be reminded that anything that happens in the world, anything that happens in politics, any of the unknown of the future, none of that alarms you at all. In fact, you are causing it and continuing to be working it toward your end. We just thank you for that. We rest in that and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.